that much incoming, we're getting out of here as quick as we can. While they control Orozhanya, the Russians do everything they can to make it a nightmare for the Ukrainians to be there. 18 months since Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered his troops to invade Ukraine. With US officials now reporting that the total number of troops from both sides killed or wounded since the war began is nearing half a million. A staggering toll, most of it paid by Russian troops, which outnumber Ukrainians almost three to one. Boosted by billions of dollars of military aid and state-of-the-art weaponry from its Western allies, Ukrainians have embarked on a counter-offensive aiming to regain control of occupied territories in the east. But no significant advance, with hundreds of kilometers of mine terrain and fortified defense lines by the Russians crushing hopes of a swift and decisive breakthrough. And yet, beyond the front lines, an extraordinary summer in Russia unfolded, with a mutiny that saw Wagner troops marching towards Moscow and Putin promising fire and fury on a beast he created. So what is really happening in the trenches of Ukraine? And is Vladimir Putin's leadership increasingly under threat? To answer these questions, I am joined by Pavel Baev. He's a research professor at Prio and a frequent contributor to Eurasia Daily Monitor and the Jamestown Foundation. I am also joined by Nina Kucheva. She's a historian, a professor of international affairs at the New School in New York, and also the great-granddaughter of the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev. I am Arno Syed, and you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Pavel, Nina, welcome both to this episode. Thank you. Very good. Let's cut right to the chase. Tens of billions of dollars of Western weapons and military equipment at the hands of the Ukrainians. Yet, we have not seen any major breakthrough this summer in the much-awaited counter-offensive by the Ukrainian army. So, Pavel, some are wondering, has the Ukrainian counter-offensive failed? Well, there are two layers to your question. One is about the scope of the aid. Another is about uh, success or failure. And for the scope of the aid, I want to emphasize that it's not really an extraordinary effort. It is big. Ukraine depends upon it very much. But, you know, for every donor country, including Norway, the aid, well, is in the range of um, half of a percent of the GDP. Norway usually gives away in the foreign aid about 40 billion kroner a year. Ukrainian aid, it's 10 billion. Just mm. to give you a very general figure, it's not an extraordinary, it's not uh, out of all proportions. It's big, it's important, but it's not really something uh, which affects other uh, elements of state budget. And now for the success or failure. Well, it was never going to be a blitzkrieg. And yes, there were hopes and there were some promises from Ukraine, particularly from the chief of military intelligence, Budanov, about a quick success. But expecting miracles isn't really a sound strategic plan. And I think the slow and steady pressure will do the work. Russians know that initiative is with Ukraine and there is no way they can win this war on defensive. It's only a question of when they lose. Right, and to your point, the Institute for the Study of War continues to assess that Ukrainian counter-offensive operations are significantly degrading uh, defending Russian forces. 
And it says that the overall degradation of the Russian defensive line creates opportunities for a breakthrough. So in other words, Ukrainians are succeeding in weakening Russian defenses and we could see a major escalation soon. So, Pavel, we aren't soothsayers here at Prio, but do you expect any breakthrough before the summer ends? You're right. The dialectics of the war is never linear. And the small uh, changes accumulate, and then suddenly you have a big breakthrough, and you can never quite predict it. Uh, Ukraine is winning now a lot of artillery duels because the Western supply systems are better, longer range, more precise. And I think this is probably the most important element of the whole process, that Russians know that their artillery support isn't there, that they cannot uh, respond, that the Ukrainian shells are really coming, including those which are West supplied. And so, yes, I don't think we will see any breakthrough by the end of summer, but I am confident things will change before the end of the year. Right. And Nina, like many of us, you saw at the end of June Wagner troops, led by their chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, marching towards Moscow, taking over government and military headquarters in Rostov-on-Don, with people cheering them in the streets, until the insurrection was called off 200 kilometers from Moscow. Are you surprised this happened in the first place? Uh, no, I wasn't. In fact, I wrote about it a month before that happened, that Prigozhin has been incredibly vocal and uh, uh, promising all sorts of things, and it would be very bad on Putin's behalf or very kind of short-sighted that there was no preventive measures taken. So I wasn't surprised at all, in fact. And I was in Moscow, and so I went to the Kremlin to kind of walk around Red Square. It was quite fascinating because people were getting married and I asked them, you know, how are they feeling about Moscow being taken over? It's like, we're not going to cancel a wedding for any Prigozhin here. Uh, So that was quite a remarkable thing. I was also, I'm not really quite certain about people cheering Prigozhin on because I felt like it was at least, I mean, I wasn't in Rostov-on-Don, so I'm only talking to, and I was, but I was talking to people around there and they were saying, no, it wasn't because of support. Nobody was jumping to sign up for the Prigozhin army. It was kind of, oh, the circus has come to town and there's real tanks and oh, there's real heroes. Oh, and they're going to go in the Kremlin. But so most people saw it as some sort of a bizarre moment, which have been so many in recent memory, kind of kind of circusy nature of its presentation coming from the Kremlin, kind of on the Kills of uh, almost every day, Dmitry Medvedev comes up with some kind of leaking brain and his telegram channel thing, saying things that no normal person, let alone uh, an official figure, should say. So it was, it was more carnivalesque than anything. But what it did show how porous and discombobulated and kind of schizophrenic this regime has become because the whole point of the vertical of power, we've heard about it for many, many decades and certainly in two decades of of the Putin era, is that uh, that vertical of power really just, you know, kind of going off its seams. And I think the Prigozhin really brought it home. Right. And in fact, back in June, you wrote about that failed mutiny in an op-ed titled 24 Hours That Shook the Kremlin. In it, you said that the rebellion by Prigozhin 
may have fatally undermined Vladimir Putin's regime, quote-unquote, and you wrote about the Russian leader that this was a man who was reacting to events, not controlling them. How damaging for Putin was that insurrection? Well, and I also said that he would get, if he survives that, he would get stronger, which he did for the time being, uh, in a sense that when you go for mm. a king, you have to kill him. And if you don't kill the king, then there's, and, and we've seen it afterwards, you know, Prigozhin is, he's a traitor and it was mutiny. And then suddenly uh, Prigozhin and his people, not just Prigozhin, everybody says Prigozhin met with the Kremlin. Prigozhin was part of 35 people meeting with Putin. But that in itself is a remarkable contradiction. But something that what I meant is it undermined Putin's regime. That is, it is absolutely complete schizophrenia and discombobulation, that everybody is saying and speaking in their own tongue, in a sense. And also, I think what it did, we haven't seen it played out as much, but I think we will see it sooner or later, is that Prigozhin's case and Putin's handling of it really gave other people who we know are there, we just don't know who they are around the Kremlin, around power. We don't know who they are. They gave them ideas. I mean, that's what the danger for Putin is. Prigozhin's mutiny gave an idea to many others. And I think in this sense, that coup, that mutiny, that treason, treason really uh, did quite a damage to the regime. Although, as I said, I don't know how soon we'll see the actual results of it. Right. And the words you used to characterize that insurrection were the words used by Vladimir Putin in a televised address. He talked of a stab in the back of our troops and the people of Russia. But then things got weird. It was announced that the mutiny was over, the Wagner boss would go to Belarus, and criminal charges against him would be dropped. And things then got even weirder. In early July, the Kremlin revealed that Putin had met with Prigozhin, which you mentioned, five days after the failed mutiny. And then Prigozhin was seen on the sidelines of the Russia-Africa summit in St. Petersburg at the end of July. So can you make sense of it for us? Is Prigozhin really off the hook? And why? Well, Prigozhin is off the hook. Prigozhin was, and I think Alexander Lukashenko, who was the greatest, you know, now he's the greatest diplomat of the Kremlin in, in many ways, he did say that. I mean, I think the bloodshed that, I mean, Prigozhin couldn't have won, but it could have been a much greater bloodshed. And the bloodshed would have been worse for Putin than this kind of, oh, look at me, I can resolve the mutiny and I have the president of the whole country be my um, uh, kind of my be my uh, my man holding holding my uh, my coat, doing all this uh, all these arrangements and readings and arrangements and kind of um, things for me. So I think. The way Putin sees it, I mean, I don't know how he sees it, I imagine that that's how he sees it, is that he just gives orders and everybody else is running around. And so the president of the country of another country, Belarus, even it's not another country, but never mind, supposedly another country, running around and doing my bit. But that's my point that I said earlier is that it's just the the whole event itself and then the handling of it showed the complete incoherency and discombobulation. I mean, Russia has always been a country of double speak. You say one thing, you do another, you mean entirely something else. But here it just came into play in so many controversial, weird combination of things. 
And on one hand, it should have given the Russian people sort of a sense of, wait a minute, what's going on? On the other hand, the way it was handled and the way it was presented is that, look, it was resolved. So you can go shopping again. You can go and have your coffee again. It really didn't touch you. And for now, it worked. But I think one of the problems, and I'm sure you know that as well, and everybody else does, but it's worthwhile reminding is that expecting linear development or absolute coherency or rational uh, formulas such as from A comes B, C is always a very big mistake in, in addressing Russia and analyzing Russia. It is a chaotic formula. And as a chaotic formula, it really allows, it's like a porridge. It allows everything to be in it. And Prigozhin event, event itself and what happened afterwards, kind of one of the dramatic signs of it. So yes, I can make sense of it. It makes as much sense as Russia itself. <laughs> and I want to pick up on what you said, Nina, about a sort of business as usual uh, vibe in, in Moscow. At the end of July, 17 African leaders came to St. Petersburg uh, to the Russian Africa summit, but they failed to persuade Moscow to resurrect the grain deal which Moscow withdrew from uh, in mid-July. Instead, Putin promised to start shipping Russian grain. And it's important to note that attendance to the summit by African leaders was half that of the previous gathering in 2019, which means that many are probably unconvinced. So, Pavel, I'd like to ask you, what is the goal of Russia here in withdrawing from the grain deal? Yeah, weaponizing grain, I think, is one of the uh, attempts by the Kremlin to influence the global south in particular, and uh, certainly Africa being the main target. And the cancellation of the grain deal a week before the Russia-Africa summit was certainly not just a coincidence. It was really kind of Putin's attempt to lever the supply of grain with the claim, deal cannot be resurrected, don't even ask about it, but we can deliver. We can uh, deliver more than Ukraine. We can deliver even some, some of it for free. Come to us, don't really ask for Ukrainian grain. And I think in that, it's a bit of misunderstanding by Putin, uh, who is at loss about what is the world market, how, it, how the prices are structured, what is kind of really the flow of goods, uh, including foodstuff, on, on the world market, how important Russia is, how important Ukraine is, um, that Ukrainian grain, if it goes, I don't know, to Spain, is still in the market. And you cannot substitute that. And it's not just about what specifically goes to the poorest countries and what goes, I don't know, to China, which Ukraine is, is a big supplier. I think in Putin's eyes, Ukrainian grain is something which helps only Ukraine. And that's why I think he is very firm set to cut it down. And I don't think Erdogan, who hopes to get Putin visit next month, probably, uh, and Kremlin still doesn't confirm, I don't think Erdogan will succeed in resurrecting the, uh, the grain deal. And um, for that matter, the whole context of Russia-Turkey partnership is seriously damaged since the Vilnius summit. Right. And... As all of this is playing out in Moscow and St. Petersburg for that summit, 
there's been a series of drone attacks on buildings in Moscow. Some of them quite spectacular if there apparently hasn't been any casualties. But nonetheless, the political and economic heart of Russia hit by drones several times. Officials in Kyiv have never formally acknowledged launching those attacks. But Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has said that the war was returning to the territory of Russia. And that this was an inevitable, natural and absolutely fair process. So, Nina, what has been the reaction in Russia? Are people worried? Yes, they are. I mean, it's, people have been freaked out and uh, I have relatives living in the countryside where next to the airport, uh, the Vnukova airport, where I think it's almost every day or every other day something something happens, something flying in and the airplanes and the landing and taking off have been uh, have been distracted. And so they've heard in the middle of the night they would hear a large boom. So, of course, they are worried. But one of the things, I mean, and, and you know, here you hear it from TV every day is that that thing that the war is inevitably coming to Russia. It actually allows the propaganda, sometimes they run out of material, but that gives them more material again is saying, well, and look at those terrorists and they're targeting the the population in the middle of the night and there's absolutely no strategic uh, goal, no strategic aims there, but look at them and so on and so forth. And as we know from, you know, the study of propaganda, uh, usually when, even if you are at fault at the beginning, but when it comes to you, then of course you have nothing else. You can, you have very little choice, but then blame the other and not blame Yourself, and so I think that that's what these drones are actually being used for the uh, for the propaganda purposes, quite and to some degree successfully even, you know, creating an atmosphere of fear, an atmosphere of of, of danger. The shopping malls are being often being called as you know that maybe there's a bomb discovered, or there would be loud announcements of something like park your car. But every time when in a shopping mall some sort of announcement comes up, the first impression of people, oh my God, there's something bomby. So in this sense, I think for Putin that works as propaganda, but for Ukrainians it is success to uh, freak out the Russian population. So the war is coming to Moscow, is coming to Russian cities, not even on the border. The The question is whether it's going to actually help Putin or help against Putin. And for now, what I'm seeing is actually helping Putin because once again, the other is being blamed, not oneself. Right. So while those drone attacks might be helping Putin, I want to ask you, Pavel, about something that might help the Ukrainians, and that is the fighter jets, specifically the American-made F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. On Friday, the US approved Denmark and Netherlands sending their jets to Ukraine. So this is likely to take months to materialize, right? Because pilots need to be trained. But will this upgrade Ukraine's capabilities in a way that would move the dial in the battlefield? I think the dial might be moved before the planes arrived. And the plane, the F-16s, will then help to consolidate. 
because definitely it's still uh, many months in this year to fight without these planes, with Russia being able to sustain uh, superiority in the air. It's not very effective superiority. Ukraine is able to neutralize a lot of that with air defenses, both on the um, battlefields and for in protecting Kiev and protecting Odessa. But nevertheless, there is an edge Russia still has, and you, with the arrival of F-16, this edge will be blunted. But I don't think it's a miracle weapon, so to say. Ukrainians need to achieve more success before that, and I think they're entirely capable of that. And the F-16s will then help in gaining more momentum behind this success. And I think with the drones, coming back to your previous question, I think we don't need to underestimate the military impact of that as well. Last week, Ukraine hit with a long-range drone, a military airport in Novgorod region, and one of the Russian long-range bombers was destroyed on the ground. So uh, it's not just information warfare and propaganda. There is a direct impact from new Ukrainian capabilities, and we see that both in Crimea, in the trenches, in the faraway Russian supply lines and echelons. And with the arrival of X-16, I think Russian pilots would become far more nervous than they already are about performing combat missions. Right. And Pavel, I want to ask you about some of the headlines that we've seen around the world very recently, starting with France, where former President Nicolas Sarkozy gave an interview last week in Le Figaro magazine where he defended Vladimir Putin and called for Ukraine to accept the Russian occupation of Crimea and other disputed territory. He also insisted Ukraine should not be allowed to join NATO or the EU and should remain neutral to appease Russia's fears of being surrounded by hostile neighbors, quote-unquote. Former U.S. President Donald Trump and front-runner for the Republican Party said on Fox News that he would restore peace in Ukraine within 24 hours of being re-elected in office. And he said, I would tell Zelensky, no more, you got to make a deal. Last but not least, and closer to home, Stian Jensen, the chief of staff for NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, said during a panel discussion last week in Arendal, where a major annual political gathering was taking place, that ceding territory to Russia in exchange for NATO membership could be a solution to ending the war. Though he did say that ultimately the decision lay with Ukraine and he later recognized his comments had been a mistake. But nonetheless, how do you interpret all these statements? Are they symptoms of Western fatigue? No, I don't think it's about the fatigue. And each of these cases is different. Sarkozy last week marked the 15th anniversary of the war with Georgia, Russian war with Georgia, where Sarkozy was really in the far front negotiating peace. And he is, in essence, defending his legacy. It's a case of political self-defense. With Trump, it's a different story. He's fighting for keeping his base mobilized in order to survive all the political storms gathering around him. His political base isn't really that large. It's probably, I don't know, 20% of the whole electorate. But he needs to keep it going. He is fighting for his survival. With Stian, I think he is probably kicking himself and Jens is adding to these kicks. Uh, there was a bit of a point in what he said, but it wasn't his to make, so to say. 
uh, it's important to uh, look seriously into the question of uh, Ukrainian uh, maximalist agenda in the war about the territories. There is no question about Ukraine's right on restoring its territorial integrity. But it's not only about the land, it's also about the people. And it's far more difficult question about people in Donbass who were living for uh, since year 14 in the war zone, about their traumas, about what how they perceive the Ukrainian offensive. An entirely different perspective about people in Crimea who didn't live in the war zone since the year 14, who had peace and quiet full life. But certainly they don't uh, want, at least at that moment in time, at all to be liberated by Ukraine. They want to be protected by Russia in the vast majority. And Ukraine cannot uh, hope uh, to win back Crimea just by military means. They need to communicate with these people. They need to talk with them, to convince them. Because, you know, laying another siege on Sevastopol is not really a prospect uh, anybody uh, can fancy. So there are issues with, uh, with that agenda. But I think Stian uh, made a blunder. Right, Plain right. And, clear. and uh, Nina, I'd like to ask you a question about Russia's standing in the world and how Russians see themselves at the moment. I mean... Russia is typically seen as a superpower. It still has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. Of course, it has a permanent seat at the Security Council of the United Nations. But it isn't a superpower in economic terms and hasn't been for a while. And uh, the war in Ukraine has precipitated this decline. The rubble is now at a 16-month low. And In March, Chinese leader Xi Jinping made an official visit to Moscow, and this was seen in one of two ways by analysts, either as cementing an alliance between two great powers or as confirming Russia's transformation into China's junior partner. In fact, ex-New York Times correspondent James Brooke claimed that Russia is emerging as an economic satellite of China, a vassal state of Beijing, basically. So I want to ask you, Nina, do you share that analysis? And is there a sense in Russia of a loss in great power status? Well, to James Brooks' claim, I would say boohoo, uh, <laughs> because the New York Times does a lot of claims and not that they're great experts. And uh, as for Xi Jinping uh, visiting Moscow, um, and you know, two out two two ways as you outlined. Actually, they're both. It's the cementing an alliance and confirming Russia's transformation as a partner, um, as a kind of a dependent partner of of China uh, and was really interesting because Xi Jinping played it uh, rather brilliantly because remember at the time everybody was going to China to see him and he went to Moscow. So he came to Moscow to say, well, and look what I have too, kind of showing what kind of great power uh, now two powers, now with Belarus three powers he has took together, which which is Uh, which was quite an interesting move. As for the superpower, you know, yes, it's seen as a superpower. And in many ways, you know, what is a superpower? If we talk about uh, economy, of course, Russia is not and has never been. But if it would speak about influence, in some ways it is. And, you know, one of the reasons, I mean, there are many reasons why Putin does what he does. But uh, Putin does have this Napoleonic slash... Czar slash something else, 11 time zones, 
complex. And when Barack Obama memorably said that Russia is just a regional power, Putin's response has been, I mean, not, not formally, but that response is, I'll show you what regional power is. And so that's what we're having. So in this sense, in terms of grabbing global attention, it's quite a powerful moment. But also, I mean, in, in Russia and today, not today, just this week, we've been discussing uh, the new textbooks for the 16 and 17 year olds. And there it's just Russia is presented as a great power. But one of the reasons it's not, as the textbooks suggest, is that because there's menacing West and never is always jealous, doesn't want to recognize us and we're victims of this and so on and so forth. So and many people uh, and many people buy it. I mean, of course, polling is interesting because the younger people couldn't care less. And that's why these textbooks are done for them, because generally they couldn't care less how big or, or small the superpower is. They just want normal life. And I put normal in quotes because that has been always a Russian dream to have a normal life. It got reasonably normal life under Putin. And then Putin said, ah, too boring. I don't want to do this anymore. And so it's, you know, what what do you mean by superpower? But for the Russians often, and especially for the older Russians, those who remember the collapse of the Soviet Union, those who were upset about the losing of the stature that the Soviet Union had, uh, for the older Russians, like, well, Putin is going to show them, and that's important, and that's powerful. Look at us. You have to recognize our 11 time zones. So once again, uh, asking for a rational response about the Russian response to anything is quite counterproductive. It really has a lot of issues and kind of a porridge of what Russia is. Yes, I think the a good illustration of the falsity of the claim for greatness uh, came last week when, with great fanfare, the mission to moon was launched. And propaganda was, you know, at maximum volume about that, and the station crashed. The, you know, technical setbacks happen, but this one, I think, was very much predetermined in showing how deeply Russia is demodernized, how degraded is the industrial base, how uh, painful is the brain drain. And I think that illustration brings us to something which is coming very painfully for many Russians, how to deal with defeat how to internalize the fact that Russia went into that war with all the kind of uh, all of its military might and is defeated and um, i think it will be very painful process and certainly you can hardly find any greatness in this in this defeat but there is a still a hope that Russia can find uh, some incredible internal resources for uh, a revival after that defeat, uh, painful as it may be. Right. And Nina, one last question to you. You are joining us today from Moscow. You have been vocal in your criticism of the war in Ukraine. In fact, you even call it a war, which in Russia can land you in prison. Are you concerned at all for your own safety? Well, actually, it's not necessarily true. Uh, originally, uh, the war word was not used, but it has been used now for many people, uh, including all TV propagandists, including Dmitry Medvedev. So it's you know kind of that thing is is no longer uh, is no longer an issue. Um, I think people decide for themselves how safe or unsafe they feel, and there is a lot of people still in Moscow, and a lot of people are. 
you know, critical in writing for Novaya Gazeta, uh, this uh, newspaper that is being closed, but still you can you can access it. Uh, so it does look more total in um, in inability to speak from the outside than it is actually from the inside. Nina, Pavel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Arno Siad. Music and edit by Brage Pedersen with sounds from CNN, The Telegraph, The Guardian and AFP.